thank you for those whose funerals have been held here in the church and we pray for the families as they continue to mourn. tonight is taken from Paul's letter to Timothy, the first book. I'm sorry, I don't, I want to take, I'm on page 1,191. Second part. I urge them, first of all, that petitions, prayers, Intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed an herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you hear that? So you said, unfortunately. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, Arian just said to me, shall we go home? But no, we won't. We'll stay. I'm aware that these verses are quite um, controversial, really, and there's a range of ways of understanding them. So I'm going to talk about how I understand these verses, but I recognize that there, that, that there may be others who think differently. But the important thing is that we listen to each other and we respect each other's point of view and we recognize that actually these are more secondary issues. And I, I use that with hesitation, really, because is it a secondary issue, really? Well, in a sense, what I'm saying is that the primary thing is the gospel. And I think we're going to see that as we look at this passage. Um, but let's pray. Father, at the end of a busy day, a really good day, Lord, where this morning we thought about being disciples um, in our homes. And then this afternoon, the privilege of being able to meet in a cafe in uh, the Hartington Road area of our parish after months and months of praying, seeking your will for us. Just thank you, Lord, for that opportunity to have a worship service there. 
And now, Lord, as we look at these verses, we pray that you'd give us understanding and that you'd speak to us. Help us to, to, to um, hear what you are saying to us, hear what each other's saying, and to respect one another, even when we disagree. And give us again that deep understanding of what your call is to us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is a significant day. I think it's, it's an important day for us as St. Stephen's as um, our, a new congregation has met for the first time in Race Cafe, um, near a place where there used to be a thriving church. It's a small start, and yet it's significant. And uh, we're praying that God will grow a new worshipping and witnessing um, congregation um, from those early beginnings. It's particularly moving to have Iris light a candle. We lit a candle uh, at the beginning of our service, somebody said, "Are you going? Are you going high church at that end?" No, it was re- it was really symbolic, and 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 having Iris light it was important, I think, because Iris is probably the last remaining, well, the one of the last remaining people who attended Christ Church, the church that used to be in that parish but was demolished in the 1970s. The church moved out of that area in a sense, so you know we're starting a service after many many years, and Iris was the one who lit the candle. Uh, so that was significant, I think. But the events of this afternoon and the reading of 1 Timothy um, are not entirely unrelated because um, what Paul is doing here to young Timothy is teaching him about what should happen when you come together. And I was doing a bit of thinking, and we as a, as a core group have been thinking about what should we be doing in, in, in this form of church that we're having in the cafe. What should we include in the service? We want to make it more accessible, more informal. What are the key elements um, that we should include. And Paul's got some things to say um, about that. Um, and it's interesting, he starts, well, I want to start in verse 4, not in verse 1, but at verse 4, where we see that Paul's just been talking about prayer and how we, um, how we are to seek um, to live peaceful and quiet lives. And then he says these really important verses. He says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. This is what it's all about, isn't it? The truth that God is our saviour, the great rescuer. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the basis of mission. That's why we're doing a new congregation over on Bow Lane in Race Cafe. And this is our message to our Muslim friends who believe in one God, and to our Hindu friends who believe in a multitude of gods, and to our friends who have no faith. Our message is what the Bible says, that there is one God. And because there is one God, there's only one person who can act as a mediator between us and God. That is the man Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. And we know that a ransom in the first century was a payment to set a slave free. It's the death of Jesus that pays our ransom, that sets people free uh, to be the people that he's made us to be. But that ransom has to be claimed by us each individually as we come in repentance and faith. So this is a central message. And all the other arguments that we often have as Christians are secondary to that primary message of what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus. It must be the most important thing we talk about here in this building and in the Race Cafe 
and on our front lines, wherever we might find ourselves, and in our homes, as we were reminded this morning. So that's where we're starting. That's the first base. But there's more that Timothy has been commanded to teach, and we're going to look at three of these commands briefly. So let's look at the first one. First command, pray for those in authority. Let's read um, verse 1. Paul says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's interesting that Paul um, puts this command as the number one in his list. And we all know that prayer is important. We've been learning a lot about that over this last year. But what is the content of your prayer life? What's the content of my prayers? Because it's very easy for prayers to become all about us, my needs, my family, my friends, my church. And we're, of course, encouraged to pray for these things. But here Paul is teaching us about what we pray about in church when we gather together. Uh, When we gather together and pray, what do we pray for? Well, we are learning um, that our front lines um, is not our church services, um, but that doesn't mean that they're unimportant um, because the weekly weekly time that we spend here together on a Sunday is to equip us, to bless and affirm us in our callings as we are sent back to our postings, our everyday situations. And a key part of that corporate prayer is, 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 sorry, a key part of our worship is corporate prayer. And Paul uses four words to describe the different types of prayer. You can see that in verse, in, in verse one. So he says, um, there are four words to use, and, and three of those words that he uses can actually um, be used um, in our communication with one another. So he talks about petition. A petition is an appeal to a higher authority, but we can use that um, to describe our everyday communications with people. Um, he talks about intercession, and again, intercession is to inter- intervene on behalf of someone else. So we can, we can use that about the things that we do with each other. And he talks about thanksgiving. Again, that's something that we might do with each other, give thanks for things that are happening in our lives. But the word prayer can only be used of communication with God. We don't pray to each other. We only pray to God. So let's start with prayer. Prayer humbles us, doesn't it? I was with a friend this week, and he was telling me about a dreadful situation. And the last thing I wanted to do was pray about it, because I was just so discouraged by it. But I said to him, you know what? I just really don't feel like praying, but that's what we need to do. He said, yep, and we prayed. Prayer, Prayer humbles us. It reminds us that there are some things that only God can give and do. Things like peace and strength and forgiveness, mercy, hope. And as we seek these things for ourselves and others, let's make sure that we go to the right place to receive them. Next word that Paul uses is petitions. Um, And petitions are requests based on need either our needs or other people's needs. It's about us praying to God, uh, to a higher authority on behalf of other people. And so we are taught to bring those needs to God. The next is intercession. Again, we s- I've said earlier about it being, an in- is, is intercession is about intervening on behalf of someone else. So again, that's something we do in our prayers. 
William Barclay, um, who's written a lot of commentaries about the Bible, says that this word intercession carries the meaning of holding an intimate conversation with a king, somebody in authority. So it teaches us that the Father welcomes us into his presence um, and encourages us to bring our requests to him. But because it's an intimate encounter, we must be open to the possibility of us being changed. It's not just that we just give our requests, but we can be changed through that encounter. And finally, we are commanded to pray with thanksgiving. We have a right to bring our needs to God, but we also have a duty to thank God as well. So Paul stresses not just um, how to pray, but also what we pray about. We are to pray for kings, and presumably that includes the queen as well. And we should pray that so we should pray to these people in positions of authority and also leaders, world leaders, um, so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. Because it's in the in the times of peace that the gospel can most flourish. I think most of us wouldn't have difficulty praying for our queen because she's a godly woman, isn't she? And we know that she's got a faith and we know she's a woman of integrity. But when it comes to praying for other world leaders that we may consider to be manipulative or corrupt, it comes a little bit different, doesn't it? But we are commanded to pray for those leaders as well. I imagine the original recipients of this letter must have been shocked with this instruction because for them it meant that they had to pray to Emperor Nero. And history teaches us that Nero took Christians and burned them in the fire of Rome. It would be hard to pray for a, for a leader who was considered compulsive, corrupt, who was a murderer. He would have been the last person that they would have wanted to pray for. That got me thinking, are there leaders that we um, consider almost beyond God's reach? Or perhaps we hold back from praying for certain leaders because we fear that people might think that we support their views because we're praying for them. But of course, um, we can respect the office a person holds and recognize the influence that they have for good. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to respect the person, but we can respect that office. So we ought to be praying for those leaders that we struggle with. And I think a church that prays for the world, as Val did tonight, um, that is, is a church that's in touch with the rest of the world. So when people come in here and they hear that we're praying for what's happening in, in China or what's happening in America or in the UK, um, we're not living in a bubble, are we? We don't come in here and sort of forget about everything that we're hearing and reading in the newspapers. We're praying for those things that are, that are going on in our world. So let's pray for times of peace and quiet in places like China and Afghanistan as we pray tonight, that the gospel is able to advance unhindered. So that's all about praying for leaders. Let's move on to our next command. Men and women are to lead holy lives. Let's read verse 8. He says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Last year on the men's weekend away, we took the verse. We were trying to think of this, Dave, weren't we, this, the last week. What was the verse we, we looked at? I think it was um, this verse about men praying everywhere, wasn't it? Yeah. 
Oh, did you? There you go. So we had a really good weekend together because we explored um, how in the Bible and, and other Christian traditions, um, the importance that people have of using their body um, and post different body postures in prayer. And we experimented. We actually um, kneeled on the floor. We laid prostrate on the floor. And we, and we prayed in those different positions. And we found it very powerful. I remember Matthias saying, he said, this is the first time I've seen, you know, these British Christians praying rather than they're just sort of sitting like this, actually doing, you know, using their body to pray. He was really encouraged. And here Paul is referring to the Jewish practice of lifting up your hands when you pray. Now, this has become a more common practice, I think, in the UK church uh, with the charismatic movement, encouraging more expressive worship. I don't know whether you remember a few years ago, um, there was an advert in the Christian newspaper for charismatic armrests. Did anybody remember that? There was actually an advert in the Christian, uh, Christian newspaper. And it, said, um, and it said, you know, available charismatic armrests for those charismatics whose arms get tired because you're standing in worship. Like, and apparently you just slip them underneath your arm like this. And that meant your arms wouldn't get, t- wouldn't get tired. Of course, it was a wind up. It was just a joke. Um, but it made us smile. But Paul's emphasis here is not so much the, the th- he's not saying all of you must lift up your hands when you pray. I think he's saying, he's stressing the need to have holy hands. There's no value in lifting your hands um, up in the air if you're clenching, clenching your fists in anger towards God or towards somebody else. Some, ver- some people say that these verses kind of present a stereotype of men and women. Men here are the macho, arrogant, angry, quarrelsome ones who will always want their own way. Perhaps you agree with that, I don't know. And women are presented as obsessed with their own appearance and concerned about clothes, hairstyle and jewellery. Again, there may be a cultural aspect to this. But let's remember, some of the converts that had come into the church at Ephesus may have actually been temple prostitutes and and, and have actually dressed in a certain provocative way because of their work. Um, and now they were in the church, you know, they were learning uh, a different way of living. Um, but I actually found it um, very helpful to read the message, the way, um, a paraphrase um, from the message of these verses. Um, if I can find it in my Bible. The chapter two, I believe. Okay, he says, he, he translates it like this, or paraphrases it like this. Since prayer is at the bottom of all of this, what I want mostly is for men to pray not shaking angry fists at enemies, but raising holy hands to God. And I want women to get in there with the men in humility before God, not primping before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful by doing it. Aren't these amazing words? Doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful by doing it. I don't think I can say it any better than he has here in his paraphrase. So let's move on to the final instruction. Um, and um, my title is, Women Are Learners Too. Now, don't be offended by that, because I'll explain why I've said that. Women are learners too. Paul was writing a letter to a newly formed church in the city of Ephesus in, to Ephesus in the first century. And I know many of you have visited Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And um, in Turkey... They believe that in terms of archaeology, it's okay to rebuild. You know, in the UK, we tend to take the other position where you just leave things, piles of stones, and leave it and leave it to the imagination. It, I find it actually more helpful in someone like Turkey because they've actually rebuilt some of the buildings. So it's easier to imagine what the place looked like. So when I remember myself and a group of friends, we were visiting 
last year. Uh, we went to Ephesus, and it was quite an experience. We stood near the library, which has been rebuilt, the, the facade, the front of the library. It's really impressive. Um, and we listened as the guide told us that just opposite this building was um, a passageway through to the brothel. Um, and you see, the red light area wasn't in some back street at the edge of the city. It was right there in the city centre. And as we walked along the wide roads where you could still see the chariot, um, you've seen them, haven't you, Leslie, uh, tracks in, 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 in the roads, uh, you can imagine how they were lined with shops that was all, and, and, and they had goods that were desirable in the first century. Materialism was another temptation for these Christians in the church. Then there was entertainment um, just up from the city centre in the large Colosseum. Or you could go and chill out in the public baths and then afterwards visit the communal toilets. Now, you have to have visited Ephesus to know what I mean by the communal toilets, but you can see them there. And there was also a range of gods on offer to worship. And, and what struck me as I imagined myself living in first century Ephesus was the pressures and temptations which must have faced those early Christians from all sorts of things in, in that place. And this is the context which Paul is writing um, to give his instructions about church life. And so he wants to say something to them about the role of women in church. And he has something very radical to say. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. When we read that verse, often we read, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And what we concentrate is on in quietness and full submission. We forget the impact of those first four words, a woman should learn. This was very radical um, for, 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 in, Jew, in Jew, Jewish culture of that day because women were not encouraged or enabled to learn. The, um, the Talmud, which is the Jewish teaching on the Old Testament law, says it's better to burn the Torah, that's the Old Testament, than to teach it to a woman. It's better to burn it than to teach it to a woman. Right? So if you've been grown up, if you as a woman, grown up hearing that, and then, then Paul says, a woman should learn, that is so revolutionary. And we need to sort of hear that from, from, from that world. Here, Paul is commanding that women are to learn alongside the men. The other thing that Paul must have been aware of was that the largest temple in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. And some of you will have seen this huge temple that's just outside Ephesus. Artemis was um, a female god. Um, and all the priests in this temple were female, were, were, were women. They ruled the show and kept men in their place. And um, the theologian Tom Wright talks a lot about this. And, 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 I've, and his writing on this makes sense to me. So I'm borrowing what, a lot of what he says um, in this next part. He suggests that Paul's instructions about women is in the context of what's happening in Ephesus and in particular in this temple of Artemis. Paul will be concerned for the new converts, female converts, and women um, who'd grown up in this culture and they're now part of the church. They come from a culture, some of them, which would suggest that um, women are independent of men. Uh, they probably lacked also a basic education. And it would be very easy for them to come into church and act like they would have done within the temple of Artemis, where um, they run the show, 
uh, they do all the teaching, and uh, the men are superfluous. They don't really take, take a role. So he wants to stress to Timothy that in the church, this is not how it was to be. Women are not to take over the show and dominate, just as men are not to dominate. The instruction is, is for them to learn in quietness, and it's very similar to the instruction that was given to men. The men were t- told to stop disputing and start listening, and the women are told uh, not to be so obsessed with their outward appearance, they need to start listening and taking on and learning uh, from God's word. So the submission bit isn't just um, for the women, it's for the women and for the men. And the submission is not to men. There's no, uh, there's no suggestion that, that women are being told to submit to men here. It's submit to God's word, as the men must do as well. Of course, there's a, you might be thinking at this, at this point in time, isn't there a danger of interpreting all scripture from a cultural perspective? Because before too long, we're going to dismiss everything, aren't we? Because we can explain it away by culture. But if we don't consider the context of these verses, then we're going to interpret them through our own culture, through our own cultural lives. So actually what we need to do is think about the context, think about the culture, and then compare it with what the the rest of the Bible teaches about this issue. So we don't take a doctrine from one part of the Bible without considering the rest. So we know that Jesus has a very high view of women. He encouraged Mary to come and listen to his teaching. Martha was in the kitchen. Martha wanted you know, Mary to come and help her in the kitchen. And Jesus says, no, let her be. Let her sit with the men and learn. That was so radical again, so countercultural. And it was Jesus who sent women, the women that had been following him, to be the first ones to preach, and that's the word that's used in the Gospels, to preach the good news that he was alive, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul makes mention of women leaders in Romans 16. He, um, he talks about those leaders in the church. And in Corinthians 11, he, talks, he expects women to be praying and prophesying in the church. And of course, Timothy, Timothy himself had been taught um, by his mother and grandmother. So, time has gone, and I don't have time to discuss verse 14. So, so I'm going to leave you to discuss that after the service. Um, but what I will do is read, um, again, what Eugene Peterson writes um, in his um, paraphrase, because I think it's quite insightful. He says, I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. That includes the men. Adam was made first, then Eve. Woman was deceived first, our pioneer in sin, with Adam right on her heels. On the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in faith, love, and holiness, gathering it all into maturity. You can depend on this. So, What do I leave you with? Let's not forget about prayer. And let's remember the things that only God can give us. And um, let's be engaged in praying for world leaders, even those we find really difficult to be even associated with. Let's seek whether they're men or women to lead holy lives. 
praying rather than disputing, seeking to be good rather than, than acquiring nice things. And as the message says, let's this week go and do something beautiful for God. And by doing that, become beautiful by doing it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of Jesus, the gospel message that you've given us to share. Help us, Lord, to keep that at the forefront of our minds and our lives, our worship, our church life. Help us, Lord, as we think through these other issues about uh, prayer and uh, the roles of men and women in church. Help us, Lord, to be able to um, disagree well when we don't perhaps all agree with each other and help us all seek to lead holy lives and help us this week to go away and do something beautiful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.